Good morning. Go over a few announcements. What a difference a week makes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, such beautiful weather out here and, and the contrast from last week. But uh, we are to uh, give thanks to the Lord for everything we have, even the, the difficulties in our life. That's right. So, uh, Verse number, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Luke 23, verse 46. Choir rehearsal is tonight again at 5 p.m. Tonight is our study in the Gospel of John. As always, bring finger foods and share and... I'll tell you, we eat pretty good on Sunday night, so no complaints there. Uh, men's Bible study is uh, Tuesdays, 10 a.m. at McLeod's. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, Andrea Luke is texting contact for the prayer chain. Her number is in the bulletin here. And uh, please keep her apprised of anything that, that's going on. So uh, directory corrections. Uh, on the clipboard in the foyer, if you have uh, issues with uh, birth dates and and uh, you just don't like your portrait, uh, see George McLeod. So, uh, spring fundraiser for Lapeer Pregnancy Center. It's done, it's done with. What was that last week? Okay, operating on last week's bulletin. So. Uh, our fifth Sunday sing-along, coming April 29th. We'll see Jared, if you're willing to participate with specials. Uh, you've Phil, I just, I just realized that I have production that day at school, so someone either else is going to have to handle the 29th. Or and I will not be here. I have a concert. <laughs> Never mind. Just, <laughs> just put that together. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll see if we can do something. If we can't, we can. If we can, we will. So we'll just so. move it to a different, different Sunday and make it up. Sure. We'll, we'll, let's look for that. Okay. We have time. Uh, new acts and facts are uh, 
on the board. Uh, there's another uh, little information I have to impart that Jess gave to me. Uh, it's a couple announcements. Our nursery is getting a makeover, like our foyer up in the front. You get a chance to take a peek in there, see what the deacons are doing. Uh, as part of the process in the nursery, uh, old toys have been removed and are laid out in the basement. Please take anything you donated and would like to have back. Everything else will be sold or donated to charity. And again, Jess's thanks. Jess is also looking for at least one senior citizen and one teenager to volunteer to work with her on the church's social calendar. Other interested adults are welcome as well. And again, please see Jess for that. Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Psalm 22, verse 7 through 12. That would be page 860 in your pew Bible. Would you please stand with me and agree in prayer? Dan, would you please lead us in prayer this morning? Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here to worship. 
souls, Lord, with your word, and um, that it would change us into, uh, into Christ, that um, we, would, uh, we would be um, different people, Lord, um, leaving the service today. And I just pray that you would um, be with pastor as he speaks. Please remain standing for our opening hymn. Take your red <clears throat> Trinity hymnal and turn to 250-250 in the red. for this one? It speaks of God's attributes beautifully. <coughs> 38. Thank you.
If you'll again stand with us, we're going to do our scripture reading. Book of Mark, or I'm sorry, Luke 23, verses 44 through 56, page 1641 in the Pew Bible. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And this, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to the, their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one has ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Take your red hymnal again and turn to 252, 252.
Our scripture text this morning is Luke 23. I had hoped to finish this series last week, but because of the ice storm, uh, we are delayed one week. We'll finish it up today. We've been looking at the words of Christ from the cross. In our last study, we looked at the sixth saying from the cross, the word of victory, it is finished. And we asked the question, what was finished? We listed three things. Number one, all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the first advent of Christ, his birth, his life, his ministry, his suffering, his death, all of those were finished. And my point was that if God kept his promises about the sending of his son into the world to become the Savior, he will certainly keep his promises about Christ returning as king and as Lord. Remember that he's coming again, but there'll be no humiliation on the second coming. No one's going to beat up on him. He's going to come as king of kings and Lord of lords. Secondly, it is finished signals the completion of all of Jesus' sufferings. He had been on the cross for six hours, and with every passing hour, his pain, his suffering intensified under the heat of the day. He also suffered the indignities, the insults, the mockery of men. Just think about this. Sinners, wretched people in terms of their conduct, murderers of, in their heart, full of hatred. They're walking by the cross and they're denigrating the very pure and holy, righteous one of glory, the Son of God. Well, all of that was finished. Jesus was about to enter into his glorification, his exaltation as king and as Lord. Then thirdly, it is finished means that the mission God mapped out for his son was now complete. That mission was to come. It was to die as the representative for his people, as we heard from Jesus' own lips. God does what he pleases and no one frustrates or thwarts his plans. Jesus accomplished the salvation of sinners for whom he was sent into the world. Well, today we come to the final word of Jesus from the cross, which I am calling the word of control, and you'll get that from the words themselves. Father, into your hands, I, I commit my spirit, verse 46 of our text. And Luke records that when he had said these words, his breath, he breathed his last identical statement and found in Mark 15, 37. Matthew says he gave up his spirit. Matthew uh, 27, uh, verse 50. Also referenced in John 19 and verse 30. So we come today to look at the word of control. And as we do, let's ask God to be with us by his spirit. Heavenly Father, uh, we are really uh, trampling on sacred ground here as we stand spiritually at the foot of the cross and we listen as Christ says his final words before his death. The final words of a dying person that knows they're dying, they're always precious to us. 
That's why we gather around deathbeds. It might be a sad time. It certainly is. But, but we don't want to miss the final words. We don't want to miss the final statements they have to make because we have in our thoughts and in our heart, the pretense is gone. They're going to say what they're going to say as, as truth. They're, they're going to just tell us like it is, what they want us to know, their final thoughts. And uh, we are humbled to be at the foot of the cross and to hear Christ's final words. This is a beautiful word, the word of control. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Bless us as we study, teach us of Christ and how glorious a Savior he is. Amen. We're looking at the words of the cross and we've come to the final word, the word of control. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now we've been seeing in our study that many of these cross utterances of Christ were predicted of him, sometimes even um, word for word in the Old Testament record. So that we would conclude that Jesus was no ordinary man, but in fact the Holy One of God sent by God to complete a mission of salvation for all who would put their trust in him. And this is no different when we come to the uh, last word from the cross. In Psalm 31, David, but more importantly David's Lord, speaks prophetically of what was going through his mind as it appeared that his enemies had won the day and defeated him in their execution. Here's what he says. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, come. For the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Psalm 31, that's the first five verses. Now it sounds very similar to Psalm 22. We read a bit of that this morning. Which we reviewed when Jesus talked about God forsaking him. Not coming to his aid. But here the circumstances are different. Jesus is no longer contemplating the abandonment of God. But having already experienced that, his thoughts now turn to God as his final refuge, which he mentions three times in this song. Refuge, refuge, refuge. He speaks twice of God being his rock or strong fortress. And one in whom he may hide without fear, knowing that he will be safe from all those who wish to do him harm. And it is in with, within that context that the psalmist says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And it is within that same thought sequence that we find Christ on the cross saying the same words. He has experienced the abandonment of God. Now he seeks the repose of being in the Father's good keeping. I want you to notice the shift in thought signalized 
by the shift in terminology. The seven cross saints of Christ can be divided in this way. Three of them were addressed either to men or about men. The assurance of the thief that he would be with Christ in paradise that day. The commitment of his mother into John's care. Thirdly, the cry of suffering expressed in his thirst. It is finished, was said to men, to angels, and to Satan, and to God, because it was the statement of triumph and victory. And then, that being said, there were three sayings directly spoken to God. The asking of God to forgive his murderers because of their ignorance in what they were doing. Number two, his plaintive cry that God had forsaken him. And now this final word, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These last three said to God. What I want you to see is the shift in relationship expressed in the words, especially dealing with Christ and God. His first prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. As the hours progressed and the suffering intensified and it became clear that there was not going to be any rescue from heaven, Jesus does not use the title Father as he prays. Instead he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, there is a sense in which he does not view himself as being close to God as Father at this point. I mean, why should he? God was distant. Think about this. God was remote. He was unresponsive to his cries for help. He's crying out and nothing's coming. Indeed, the Father acted as the God that he was. Granted no leniency whatsoever to the one being crucified on this cross. Paul puts it this way. Speaking of God, he <coughs> excuse me, did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. Romans 8 verse 32. The taunt of the religious leaders had been, he trusts in God. Well, <laughs> let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Matthew 27, verse 43. And of course, what they were suggesting was that God was not father to Jesus in that unique way in which Jesus had been expressing the relationship. no. God the Father would have nothing to do with him. And doesn't that prove that God didn't own Jesus as his son? That was their point. His God, yes, for the God of Israel is the God of all men, whether they recognize it or not. Yes, he's God. But Father, ha! What presumption! And when Jesus asked, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It only appeared that Jesus had discovered what the religious leaders had known all along, namely that Jesus was deluded 
into thinking that God was his father and that he was actually the son of God. How stupid, how presumptuous. But now, now we come to this final word from the cross and we hear Jesus return to that filial address to God with which he had begun. He says, Father, not God, not God, but Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Whatever time of separation there had been between Jesus and God as he bore the wrath and penalty of sin for his people, that was now over. And just in case the Pharisees still thought that Jesus was suffering from delusions of grandeur earlier, but had now come to his senses, his final words assert again that he viewed God as his father, and as such, the very one to whom he was confident to commit the safekeeping of his spirit. So he's gone 180 degrees, he's gone right around the clock. He's come back to the idea of addressing his prayer to God as Father. Brethren, how blessed we are that Jesus' Father is our Father and ours because his. Think about that. Whatever storm you may think you are experiencing under the discipline of God for your sin, and to be sure, God does chasten every son, every daughter whom he receives. Yet John tells us how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. 1 John 3, verse 1. You ever think about that? We should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Then with Christ, as now with us, it may seem very presumptuous on our part to claim God as our Father, and to suggest that there is something exclusive and unique about this which the world has no part in. But John goes on to say in the next verse, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 1 John 3, verse 1. So what I'm saying is this. You are in good company if the world thinks you're a nutcase because you claim God as your father and Jesus as your brother. But that is because they don't know God. So they can hardly be expected to recognize the children of God though we're living right under their nose. They see, but they don't see. What is more, Jesus taught, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, now here's the reality. I'm still reading Christ. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. John 15, verse 19. And the next verse goes on to explain 
that if the world persecuted Jesus, and that is for his claims, they will persecute you and me as well. But listen, the persecution, the taunts, the mockery, the insults do not alter the relationship one whit. Let them curse and mock and say anything they want to say. As with Jesus, God is still our Father. He's still our refuge. He's still our rock. He's still our fortress. And the one who will gladly receive our spirit in our dying day and keep us safe till resurrection morning. This then is the lesson we should take to heart from Jesus' final word from the cross. Through the suffering, through the pain, through the wrath of God, he was still, God was still his father. How shamefully wicked of us that we would think that trouble in our life means that God doesn't love us as his children anymore. But we do think that, don't we? At times. Christ was in control of his feelings. We would do well to master our feelings as well. It isn't feelings that determine our relationship with God. It's the facts of the redemptive history that's found in the scripture. It's the facts of the gospel. Then too, we see in Jesus' statement, his complete control, I love this, the complete control of his life. Father, into your hands I, hello, I commit my spirit. Oh, as you read history, there are a lot of people in our day who brag about how they are in control of their life. I hear it all the time. They make statements about being their own boss. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. They're going to do as they please when they want to do it without anyone else's approval. But in our hearts we know that this is nothing more than an empty boast. Whatever control we think we have of our lives, the reality is that we are interdependent, not independent. Our lives touch other lives, and their lives affect us. And for the Christian especially, Paul put it this way, none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. You're not alone. That's Romans 14, verse 7 and 8. Even, even of the unbeliever, Paul told the Athenian pagans on Mars Hill in Athens, he, referring to God, he himself gives all men life, breath, everything else. For in him we live, 
move, have our being. Acts 17, verse 25 and following. Pagans need to hear that too. It's not just Christians. <laughs> and we would do well to remind them of that. Will they accept it? No. But they need to hear it anyway. In God, we live and move and have our being. That doesn't sound like independence to me. It's only the pride of the human heart that makes people think they are masters of their own destiny. In the year 1875, by the way, the first hymn that we sang today, look at it up in your bulletin, the first hymn we sang today was written in 1875. So compare the hymn writer's words with what I'm going to read to you now. The poet William, William Ernest Henley wrote a poem in 1875 called Invictus. Invictus is the Latin word for unconquered. And you'll get from the poem, it's only four verses, so hang in there. You'll get from the poem what he means by unconquered. Now keep in mind, this guy's a pagan. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond the place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I think he's referring to the Bible there. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. End of poem. William Ernest Henley. I added my own little verse to the bottom of the poem. Tis a fool indeed to say, none but me controls my day. God alone is sovereign king, and most man's destiny does bring. It's only a fool that talks like that. Read about it in Psalm 14. The fool is said in his heart. <laughs> there is no God. It's only the pride of the human heart that makes people think they are masters of their own destiny. But in our Lord, in, in this text, there is no boast, there is no pride, but very much there is real control. Jesus' life was not taken from him, but forfeited by him. The various Greek words used by the different gospel authors demonstrate this. Let me take you through this real quick. Matthew's account is 27 and verse 50. It says that he gave up his spirit. The original word in the Greek language means to dismiss or to send away. It's used of Christ driving out the merchants who had made God's house a place of merchandise in Mark 11 verse 16. 
And the word, the word is most appropriate for Matthew's gospel because Matthew writes of Jesus as king. He wants us to see him as king. And so Jesus is described as dismissing his spirit as a king might dismiss a servant. The word demonstrates his authority to lay down his life, to command his spirit to go to God. And the word that Luke uses is the same one that Mark uses. And this word means to place by the side of, to set before, to deposit, to entrust. You see, Mark presents Christ as a servant of God and Thus his word demonstrates not so much the dismissal of a king, a command to leave, but more the idea of passive trust, giving over into the hands of God his spirit for safekeeping. And then John, in 19 and verse 30, uses a word meaning to hand over, to yield up, that is to relinquish, to let go. The idea in the Greek word is handing something over voluntarily, giving it up willingly. No one is twisting his arm here. There's no coercion, no forcing. Christ is handing over. He's relinquishing his spirit. You know, adjectives and adverbs are wonderful aids in human language. I think that's why we have the synoptic gospels. So why, do, why, why couldn't we just have one gospel? I mean, they're all talking about the same person, the same time in history, the things that he did, the miracles he performed, the teaching that he taught. Da, da, da. Why don't we just have Matthew? Why Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? Because one man will say something a certain way. Uh, that will be different from another person, all under the inspiration of God's Spirit. John, uniquely, the person that was there, because he was at the foot of the cross when the others were not there. But each has his part. So adjectives and adverbs, they're wonderful things, and they help us in human language. If I say to you, Maria is a pretty woman, such a statement may convey to you that, well, She's not ugly. She's pretty. She's a pretty woman. But as I begin to multiply adjectives, the image of Maria will change in your mind. Maria is a pretty woman. Okay. She is a beautiful woman. Oh, really? She is a gorgeous woman. We're still talking about the same person, but with different adjectives. Now you're prepared to think of Maria as not only as not ugly, but as someone pleasant to look at. And if I say, Maria is absolutely stunning, you begin to view her through my description as one so outlandishly attractive that people do not know what to say in her presence. They are speechless. And by the way, that's Esther in the book of Esther. Xerxes looks at her and says, Wow, where have you been all my life? So it is the same with the 
verbs the gospel writers employ here with Jesus' final words. Jesus gave up his spirit from his body voluntarily. He relinquished it to God. He entrusted his spirit to God as one might entrust something very precious to another for safekeeping. And in a loud and unmistakable voice of strength and mental presence, he commanded his spirit to go into the hands of God. Each word has its place. Each word adds to and clarifies the other statements. And it takes, brethren, all these, all three words, to form the total picture of his control and sovereignty. This is not the same as suicide. If I take a gun and put it to my head and pull the trigger, and that may demonstrate on my part my willingness to die, but it does not convey my ability to dismiss the spirit as a king might dismiss a servant. From the time the bullet leaves the barrel of the gun, I have no control of what it will do. It takes my life from me. I have lost the power. The volitional choice of commitment to another of what belongs to me is lost. My spirit will leave my body because the bullet kills my body. It will not leave because I relinquished it into the keeping of another. Only Jesus, God's Son, could die this way. This authority was given to him by God the Father. And speaking of laying down his life for the sheep as the good shepherd, Jesus put it this way. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Listen to this. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received of the Father. John 10, verse 17 and following. Who talks like that? Nobody talks like that. Nobody can talk like that except God in the flesh. And this explains that when the Jews secured from Pilate permission to have his soldiers break the legs of those being crucified to hasten their death, when the soldiers came to Jesus, they did not break his legs because, guess what? He was already dead. And that's why when Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate to request the body of Jesus so that he could give him a proper burial before the Sabbath, we are told, let me read it for you, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Oh, not only was he surprised, he did something about it. Let me read on. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. Well, this is just, this is too unbelievable here. Let me read on. 
when he, when he learned from the centurion uh, that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph of Arimathea. Mark 15, verse 44 and following. Why was he surprised? Because crucifixion took a whole lot longer than just six hours. That's why. But you see, crucifixion didn't take Jesus' life. He gave up his spirit to God, commanding it to go into the care of the Father. He died as the prince of life, fully in control of his destiny. Jesus committed his life into God's hands at his death, even as he had lived his life in the hands of God all of his days. Is this true of you this morning? Have you, as a sinner, committed your spirit into the hands of God? Well, you have, if you've entrusted your soul to Jesus' atoning work by faith. Paul could say... I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. And Christian brother or sister here this morning, what about your commitment? Have you fully given yourself over to the work and to the will of God? Are we not charged in Romans 12? I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You're not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul hits on it. The principle. Change your thinking and it will change your life. It will. It's a decision of the will in favor of God. And then you offer your bodies. Are you living for the glory of God? Are you worshiping him with a life committed to him? Are you attached to him so that you may bring forth fruit for God? That's John 15, the whole chapter. The false prophet Balaam requested... Let me die the death of the righteous, and may my end be like theirs. Numbers 23, verse 10. The false prophet said that. <laughs> to die the death of the righteous, you have to live the life of the righteous. And such a life is only in which you present your body and spirit to be used by God in worship of him and in service for him. And that wasn't Balaam. Then in this final word of the cross, the Father's hand, we note, is the place of peace and eternal security. Does not the Bible make it clear that when Christ died on the cross, we were represented in that death? And when he rose from the grave, we, in the spiritual sense, received new life too as being 
resurrected with him. Romans 6 encapsulates both ideas. Let me read it for you. Don't you know, writes Paul, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Romans 6, verse 3 and following. What we have here is the principle of representation. The principle of representation. Christ on the cross was not experiencing anything there for his own benefit. What he did, he did for his people, those who would believe in him. What he accomplished in terms of satisfying the justice of God, he accomplished for you and for me. The same holds true for this business of committing his spirit into the hands of God's safekeeping. Being in the hands of God is the place of peace, it's the place of security for God's people. John 10 verse 29 speaks of Christ's sheep in the most assuring words, My father... Who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. This is the ground of the believer's confidence. In the day of death and judgment. I like what I read in Genesis. When Noah and his family entered the ark. It says God... Shut the door. Wow. All the floods of destruction which took the lives of millions of people was on the outside, but it couldn't touch the people of God who were in the ark of safety on the inside. They were safe in God because of God. Though it's true that we are weak and sinful in ourselves, Paul says that we are through faith. Let me read it for you. Peter says, excuse me, not Paul. Peter says that we are through faith shielded by God's power. Ooh, I like that. Shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. So now for a little while... You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 1 Peter 1, verses 5 through 8. Kept by the power of God. It is to this that Jesus committed our spirits at the cross. He dies for us. And here Peter shows that this security and assurance from God is possible even while going through 
times of trial and grief. There's no panic here. There's no loss of control. No hysteria. No fear of death or dying. He's not only resigned to death, he is at peace with it because he goes to God. This is the mark of every believer. I got to tell you, I've been at the deathbeds of a lot of God's people. Standing right there with them. Praying with them. Praying for them. Holding their hand. Talking about the things of God. Fifty some years of ministry, I've stood a lot of vigil by the death of God's people. And I got to tell you, in all those years, I never heard any of God's people curse God. I never seen them in panic. I never seen it in tremor. Sometimes they've asked questions just for assurance sake. Trusting in Christ. Pastor, what about this? What about that? It's not an excellent time to talk of the things of the gospel which they already believe in. But no horror, no panic. They realize it's like the old King James scriptures read about going to sleep. Death is spoken of as going to sleep. One day, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the Jerusalem church, was filled with the Spirit of God, began to preach to the people of that day, Israelites. He traced their history from the early days of God's electing grace and calling Abraham as their forefather to their present day, which was displayed in betrayal and murder of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Not only so, but he charged them with disobedience to the word of God all their days. Wow. Well, that was too much for these hard-hearted Jews to handle. And so they ushered Stephen out of the city and they began to stone him to death. Kind of the principle, if you can't stand the message, just get rid of the messenger. Change the mouthpiece. You might get a different message. (laughs) But as Stephen was dying, he looked into the heavens and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Standing now, not seated. There's other scriptures that talk about him being seated. But Christ is standing at the right hand of God. And as his breath ebbed away out of his body. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus. Here's what he prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit. Acts 7, verse 59. Only the believer in Christ has that confidence. Only those whose eyes are upon Christ, know that he knows that he stands to receive them with open hands. And Stephen saw that. Ah, but for the unbelieving, the Bible says, 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 verse 31. So my question this morning is, what's it going to be for you? Peace, as in the case of Stephen. Seeing Christ as the one ready to receive him into glory. Or terror. Knowing that you're falling into the hands of the living God. Commitment of your spirit to God now. Amen. Amen. Or being cast into outer darkness by that same God later. May God grant you the faith of repentance today. It's his gift. But he'll give it to those who ask. If you seek him, the scripture says, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for these sayings of Christ from the cross. They take us into a dimension that we have not thought about. Really new to us. In many ways, mind-boggling. Because Jesus, in just seven words... From the cross has taught us more than many false prophets and preachers have taught through the years. He leads us to the foot of the cross and to see in his death our salvation. It points to a tomb that's going to be opened. A resurrected Lord that has ascended into heaven and will come again. There's a lot of false teachers out there that aren't telling us the truth about the gospel. May you grant to us the repentance unto life. And grant us the faith, not only to turn away from our sin, but to look to Jesus as author and finisher of our faith. We praise you this morning. Thank you for so wonderful a salvation. Oh, dear Christ, we love you. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 257 in the red hymn. 257. Let's stand together as we sing.
Thomas Kelly really got the words of the gospel down in that, in that hymn. Wonderful truth that in Christ the guilt has been taken care of. And it's because of Christ and only because of Christ that we're, that we're forgiven. And not only forgiven, but set free from the power of sin. Do you know that as Christians we don't have to sin anymore? Well, we do sin. But we don't have to anymore. With the unbeliever, they have to sin. Every time they open their mouth, go anywhere, do anything, they don't do those things for the glory of God. It's all self, self, self. But we have choices that we can make. And we can choose to live for the Lord and rejoice in his salvation. And we know enough or should know enough that when we do sin, we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Not just the sins you confess, but the ones you forgot about. They're forgiven too. Well, tonight we'll see you at 6 o'clock as we continue our study in John's Gospel. And tonight we're going to examine Pilate's examination of Jesus. What a lesson in injustice that is. Tonight, John 19. Brutus Smith. Oh, it's a slow. It's six. Yeah, it's, it's, it's slow.